0: Partly to mostly sunny, hot, and humid this afternoon, a high of 92 to 96. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low 68 to 74. Humid mix of sun and clouds tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. A high in the low 90s, low 90s on Friday, mid 90s on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP.
1: Hello, and guess what? This is not Buzz. This is Nan Parati. And every afternoon on Wednesdays, I have my, my show called The Interesting Thing. And this week, I'm in Newport, Rhode Island, working the Newport Folk and Jazz Festival and my because Buzz is out of town, I forgot to say that. Buzz is out of town. But I am sort of in town. <laughs> Buzz is taking a vacation. I'm not doing that. I'm having a great time working. And my guest this week is Dan Swain, who is head of the Newport Festivals Foundations. When George Ween, George Ween was the guy who started these festivals back in 1954, right? He started, yeah. Newport Jazz was started in 1954. Yeah. Newport Folk was? 1959. 1959. Yeah and uh i was two years old when they started that <laughs> <laughs> and my parents were hippies they came oh, nice. <laughs> yeah oh. so um yeah so george started the festivals and he also set up a foundation to make everything keep going and the, to me so i've worked for george wing for 30 years now and he was the guy that created the festivals that kept on going and kept on <laughs> giving which is mm-hmm. so exciting and so Dan, you worked kind of closely with George, did you not?
2: Yeah, for for the end of his the tail end of his life, I was working pretty close with him. I had the honor to to actually get to work with him.
1: He died last October. Uh,
2: yes, technically September. Uh-huh. So, uh end of September, I believe he passed.
1: Right. At age 95?
2: Uh, I yes, was, yes, he yeah. Was, well, it was it, he didn't quite get to his 95th birthday, if I remember
1: correctly. Right. Maybe that was it, it yeah. Close to yeah. It, yeah. And um but yeah, but he said so so Okay, he had this vision. He had his vision. Can you talk a little bit about his vision for festivals, how this whole thing worked?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, you know, like you said, he started the festivals in the fifties and originally the uh folk festival had a foundation set up as a non uh, it, it originally the first year it was not a nonprofit. It mm-hmm. was a for profit. And um then he teamed up with his friend Pete Seeger, uh-huh. and Pete Seeger said, "You know, I want to be involved, but I want you to make it a nonprofit."
1: Oh, that is so cool! I yeah. love that. Yeah.
2: So that was the folk festival, and so they they created the Newport Folk Festival Foundation, and that was a nonprofit. Through over the years, it went. Uh, it eventually became a for profit. They moved away from the nonprofit status, and uh, for the first, you know, thirty or I believe 30 or 40 years of its existence, the folk and jazz festivals were a for-profit. And then um, George went through various business sort of uh, dealings and uh, worked with various people until he came about in 2010 and said, you know what, we need to take this back to its roots and we need to make it a non-profit again. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that point... The Newport Folk and Jazz Festivals, you know, by 2010, they were household names and they were cultural cultural institutions that I think people, especially in America, recognize that they need to be preserved. These are not just events that we want to let go by the wayside and be uh, susceptible to uh, just ticket sales. We want them to be a nonprofit so that they can live on, like you said, and exist for many years to come. And so he set up Newport Festival Foundation. He, he made the festivals a nonprofit. Really with the mission, first and foremost, to make sure that these festivals lived on in perpetuity. Uh, But there was also part of that mission to support music education programs um, that were in the folk and jazz genres. So that was that was the mission. Keep the festivals going and extend their impact through music education programs.
1: That is cool. Yeah. I, I I do have to go back to loving that Pete Seeger was involved with that. That is
2: yeah. so Pete Seeger. It's so Pete Seeger, and I, I love that that's part of our history. Yeah,
1: yeah cool. and for those of you who may not know, I mean, Newport Folk and Jazz Festivals are such legendary festivals. Um, one of the things I always enjoyed doing was hearing George talk about it, and, and one of the um, legends of Newport Folk is that this is where uh, Bob Dylan went went electric, yep. and that Pete Seeger went crazy and <laughs> <laughs> got so mad. Yeah. And actually, that's not even necessarily a true story. I hate to burst y'all's bubble, but it's not actually
2: a true story, even. Right? There's a lot of legend, and there's a lot of controversy over what happened that evening. <laughs> there's actually there was a book written about it a couple of years ago that was like a 300 page book that went into just what actually happened.
1: On the night the Bob Dylan that went night. electric, That's yeah. so
2: great. And there's you know I won't spend too much time talking about it, but. You know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about how Pete Seeger was so pissed off and whatever. And I think a lot of that frustration had to do with the fact that you couldn't really hear what Bob was saying. You couldn't hear the lyrics that he, oh. he was performing because it was electric. You couldn't hear his lyrics over the sound of the guitar. And that really pissed Pete off because he understood that Dylan was writing these incredible lyrics and right. no one was hearing them. And so I think, you know, it was a combination of Pete frustrated at the fact that Dylan wasn't being given, you know, the audience wasn't being given the chance to hear his lyrics and uh, a whole bunch of other things. So, but there's the old, there's the old legend that he took a saw or he took an ax and tried to hack the cables, but Yes, yeah. I, I don't
1: think I heard that happen. one. And that would have electrocuted Pete, would it not? Yeah, heard? I think Pete was a little
2: too smart to do something <laughs> like that. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and no, that would have been the day that Pete Seeger went electric. Right?
1: <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> um, but I do know too that before before George came up with these these, there were you just I mean there would be a festival here, a festival there, but right. but not what what he had here with the jazz. I mean, the jazz legends. Yeah. you
2: didn't hear anywhere else, but here. Well, the interesting thing too, you know, from a history perspective is that there have there's always been festivals. Our society has right. always had festivals. Right. You know, the idea of coming together for music outside is not a revolutionary idea, but, right. but the interesting thing about just the stars aligning for George's life was that, you know, there'd been classical festivals that had happened in Massachusetts and across the world. And, those festivals have been running for years but the amplification the science of amplification Uh really didn't hit its peak until the 50s and so george recognized that he could take this he could take amplified music and bring it outside and do a big music festival with amplification really no one had done that successfully up until george so George said, let's amplify jazz music and put on a big festival. Whereas in, in the past, classical music was the only thing loud enough ah. to really be uh, outside and have a festival with a large enough audience. So long story short, George realized we can amplify the music, we can have it outside, we can throw a big festival and we can invite thousands of people. And he was approached by Elaine Lorillard, who was uh, basically a, a rich woman in Newport, who said, George, I want you to throw me a festival in Newport. And I want, you know, can you do it? And he said, yeah, well, we can, we can amplify it. And we can uh, we can have thousands of people come and then you know People always think that Woodstock was the first big festival, but it wasn't. And the people that had done Newport for years actually did the sound at Woodstock as oh, well really? because they had been such experts and they'd been doing it for so long.
1: Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I did not know that. That's
2: very, very cool. Yeah.
1: And I know, I know too. Like I said, like I said about the jazz, the jazz part of it. George was a jazz musician, a piano player. Great one. And yeah, really great one, and played in clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, but to bring jazz to the world the way he did, he, he was the guy who did that. I mean, he, I I would say he made so many of those guys so much more famous than they would have been
2: otherwise yeah absolutely i mean george george's mission in life was to get more people to hear jazz Mm -hmm. you know i think he he loved the pro festival but for him he, he used to say jazz is my baby you know he loved he loved jazz music he loved the jazz festival and he did i i think he genuinely did think that the world was a better place when people listened to jazz and uh one of the beauties of that is that he also was producing and promoting at a time when it wasn't very um, common to have black musicians on the stage with white musicians. Right. And he was someone who, um, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why George was progressive for his time, but part of it had to do that George was Jewish. Right. And so he had seen... And his wife the, was black. As, well, well, even predating his wife. Oh, okay, right. I, I, I think it's an important... Point, yeah, that point. he was Jewish, and he had seen what happened in World War II and the prejudices against the Jewish community, and he said, "I'm not going to let that be in my life for you know for black people." Uh-huh. And so he came back uh, after the experience in World War II and said, "My stages are going to have you know my jazz clubs, my stages are going to be uh, you know they're going to be black and white people playing at the same time," and that was a pretty forward-thinking thought for him. Oh gosh, absolutely,
1: yeah. and I know too that so I worked with the Jazz Fest in New Orleans too, mm-hmm. and the first year of that was 1970. Right. And he he said, let's go to New Orleans. Let's, you know, he loved jazz. Let's go to New Orleans. Let's do this there. And like I said, his wife was African-American and he went down there and they were not well received at all. No, indeed not.
2: Yeah. And uh, as the story goes, according to George's book, which I highly recommend, it's yes. my life among others. Really good. My life among
1: others. Yes. Yeah. And
2: uh, in that book, he tells the story of how New Orleans invited. I think it was the state of New Orleans, uh, the city of New Orleans invited him to come down oh. to throw this jazz festival. And he said, yeah, but you got to let me bring my wife and you got to have the stages be integrated. The the stages, I need to be able to uh, have black people and white people perform on the same stage. And he said, no. And so he said, "Okay, fine, I'm not going to do it. Right. And then they came back to him, I think, 10 years later. Right. And said, all right, George, we were wrong. We want you to we want you to do it the way you want to do it. So he came and that's when he started the New Orleans Shadow Heritage Festival.
1: Right. I know. George is I'm so proud and so happy and so everything else you can say to have known George Wien. Yeah. Uh, such a such a legend and such a such a cool guy.
2: And he was very active in producing the festivals up until his last breath. Yes. He, he had a very a very good, healthy dialogue with the current executive director, Jay Sweet, about the direction that the jazz festival and and less so, but uh, folk festival should be moving. And he had a lot of strong opinions about the artists that performed. Mm -hmm. And he had a lot of strong relationships with artists where if we needed to book a big name, like a wooden Marsalis or a John Batiste, he could give them a call and say, you know, I'm 94 years old. You're going to play my jazz festival because <laughs> I've I've been supporting you my entire life, or your, and your, your daddy. entire life. Yeah, and your daddy. Yeah, right. Right. And um, and they would do it for George, and he really was involved up until his last breath. And you know, I, I've heard Jay Sweet, our executive director, talk about how he didn't realize how much work George was doing, uh, even up until his last day. Because now that George is gone, there's a lot of stuff that Jay has to do that he didn't realize George was doing. Right. The scenes, you know. Conversation. Oh, yeah,
1: go ahead. Hold on one second. Do we need to take a break yet?
2: Sure. If you want to take a break, it's up to you, Nan.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to pretend like I'm buzz here. If I were buzz, I would say, and we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick station break. Is that what I'd say if I were buzz?
2: That is what you can say, yes.
1: All right. So we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick station break and be right back with Nan Peretti and Dan Swain and George Ween. <laughs>
0: This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
2: What what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible.
3: Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 101.5, 1400,
0: and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
5: Is there corn chowder today? There are things they only make certain times of year at Paul and Elizabeth's Restaurant. And with the corn so tall, there might be corn chowder today. There might be blueberry pie. The kitchen garden farm in Sunderland might arrive at Paul and Elizabeth's today with eggplant or zucchini. What'll they make with those? Eating at Paul and Elizabeth's isn't exactly like eating out of your own garden, but it's close. Paul and Elizabeth's Restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton.
6: The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery. Route 9 in Hadley and online at winesicknursery.com.
0: When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP.
7: We live in one of the most beautiful places in the country, the hill towns and valleys that we call home here in western Massachusetts. At the Franklin Land Trust, we're working with landowners and community members to protect the landscapes that give us productive farmland, clean water, and healthy woodlands. We don't have to travel too far these days to see places where those sorts of things are just a memory. Our staff and volunteers have helped us to protect more than 32,000 acres so far here in our region. And we hope that you'll consider supporting our efforts to take care of the land that we all love. The farms that give us fresh local food, the riverways that give us clean water, and the forest and wildlife habitats that provide us all with healthy air. For more information on our work of landscape conservation, please visit our website at franklinlandtrust.org. That's franklinlandtrust.org. And thank you for your consideration.
0: This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP.
1: Hey, (laughs) y'all. This is Nan Parati. I'm here today and sitting in for Buzz and also sitting in for myself here. And uh, my guest today is Dan Swain, who is head of the Newport Festival's Foundations. And we've been talking about George Wien and what he did to create ongoing festivals that changed truly, and I'm not making this up, changed the world of music. Absolutely. And so we've talked a lot about George so far, but I want to talk too. I want to give Dan a, a moment to talk about the foundation itself and what it does and what, why we have the foundation and all the stuff that you do. Cause I know that you do a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so like I said before, uh, George realized in t- around 2010 that, the festivals had become such a cultural cultural institution that it was worth making a nonprofit to make sure that they lived on forever. Uh, that's the mission of the nonprofit, and so technically, 2011, the Newport Festivals Foundation was incorporated, and the mission was preserve the festivals, but also expand expand their impact through music education programs. And I think really the reason George added on that second part to uh, expand their impact through music education programs is because he realized that jazz and folk music need to actively be preserved and that nonprofits and uh, artistic institutions need to be proactive about making sure that the next generation of folk and jazz musicians exist. Uh, And so to him, it was important to uh, create music education programs that informed the next generation about the traditions of jazz and, and folk music. And uh, so that foundation was established, and over the years, we have increasingly expanded that second part of the mission, which is to uh, you know, have and support music education programs. And so we do this by, in a variety of different ways. Um, one of the initiatives that we have is called the Artist Gives Program, and what that is is every single artist on the uh, folk festival and the jazz festival lineup gets to choose a music education program that they care about and that they're passionate about somewhere in the United States. And we make a small grant to that organization. Um, So, you know, we have quite a lot of artists on our lineup of both folk and jazz festivals. And so we've made, I I believe we're at 52 grants this year uh, on behalf of different festival artists on our lineup. And that program really has made a, a big impact across the, the United States, and has supported a lot of very small but uh, you know grassroots doing a lot of the important work in music education. And I'm particularly proud of that program. On a more local level, we also have you know wanted to make sure that we are supporting music education programs locally here in Newport. And so we have made a commitment to the local schools in the Newport County to provide them with the resources and the donations that they need to succeed. So, uh, you know, every year we make donations to the local schools here in Newport uh, for instruments and microphones and, uh, you know, studio monitors, whatever they need to succeed. And um, I'm particularly proud of that program as well. So that's just a small sampling of the work that we do year-round to fulfill that second half of the mission to support music education programs.
1: I know. And I'm so – can we talk about what we did last year? Sure. This is so cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, y'all. I'm going to talk about myself here for a second. But I, I, for 30 years now, I've written signs for the Jazz Fest here, the Folk Festival here, and the Jazz Fest in New Orleans for 30 years. And it was George Wein's idea, come and do this. So I did it. I've been writing signs, and I write all the stage names for all the different artists who were playing that day. And Dan and I last year came up with the idea because they've kind of become iconic. In fact, in Western Massachusetts there, you'll see my signs a lot of places around. I, I write the signs for a bunch of different festivals there, too. So you'll see my signs at festivals and other places. So we came up with the idea that we would take the stage signs, which, like I say, 30 years in, have people recognize, and we would have the artists sign them and autograph them. And then Dan took all those signs and he auctioned them off last year.
2: And raised a lot of money. I think we raised thirty grand. Yeah, $30,000. <laughs> so all that money was taken and turned around and given to music education programs in Rhode Island. So that was a, that was a really great initiative. And I also want to stop and, you know, if anyone hasn't seen Nan Signs, it's, it's not, it doesn't really do it justice to call them Signs. Because they really <laughs> do, they're really pieces of art that set the tone and the vibe of the festival. And I think they are a complete part of our identity. And on a more practical level, it is incredibly useful to have someone that can write up a sign in 20 seconds (laughs) as opposed to having to go run to Staples and print every sign that you need. So I think what you do is so fascinating. And I I give a lot of tours to people backstage during the festivals, you know, uh, student groups and things like that. And All of them love the part when they get to see the signs being made backstage (laughs) because it's such a cool part of our identity as a festival.
1: That's very, very sweet of you. That's really kind. Um, I have such a great time. I'm so grateful to George. See, this is the reason I love the festivals the most because I get to then do what I love doing most in the world, which is making signs and doing fun stuff like that. And also, I'm so excited that we were able to take these signs and with that raise $30,000 For music education. it's so cool. It's just amazing. And
2: it's a testament to how much people love your signs and how much they want to support the music education work that we're doing. Right. It was was such a perfect little combination for the right cause. It was great.
1: Yeah, I know it. It's really, really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. And so I appreciate all of that. Everything, all of it. George,
2: thank you so much. Thank you, George. We appreciate you.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? I am not used to being Buzz. I'm used to only Nance. And I never, I don't know exactly, Dan, so Dan in the station, you have to help me figure this out. Do I just, I have a second guest coming in for the second half of our show today, so do I just pretend that I am logging off and logging back on, or what should I do, Dan?
4: You should
2: just cut into a break, and we'll figure that out.
1: Okay, that sounds good. Dan Swain, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Nan. This was so much fun. This is great. And we're going to go to a break, and then we'll come back.
2: Okay, sounds good.
1: Happy, talk, keep talking, happy, talk, talk about things
6: you'd like to do.
0: This is the Afternoon you Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP.
6: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The town of Amherst is offering a resident aid assistance program using funds provided by the American Rescue Plan Act. Amherst is partnering with Family Outreach of Amherst to disperse $150,000 in ARPA money to support financially struggling residents pay overdue rent, mortgage, or utility bills. The grants will be for a maximum of $3,000 and accepted on a first-come, first-served basis until funds are spent. A man wanted in connection with the death of a Harvard woman is dead. 34-year-old Matthew Davis was shot and killed by police around 7.45 last night in West Brattleboro. Davis was being sought by the authorities as part of the ongoing investigation into the disappearance and death of 23-year-old Mary Anderson, whose body was found early Tuesday morning inside her pickup truck parked on Elliott Street in Brattleboro. The identities of the officers who fired their weapons will be released a day after the shooting, per protocol. Legislation designed to protect the right to reproductive and gender-affirming health care in the Commonwealth was passed by the House and Senate last week. Senator Joe Comerford is leading a working group to look into rights under threat by the Supreme Court, as well as later in pregnancy abortions.
3: So with regard to late, so-called late-term abortions, the Senate and the House are both trying to solve for ensuring access to later-term abortions.
6: Senator Comerford will co-lead the panel with Cindy Friedman, chairwoman of the Healthcare Financing Committee.
3: Partly
0: to mostly sunny, hot, and humid this afternoon, a high of 92 to 96. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low 68 to 74. Humid mix of sun and clouds tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon, a high in the low 90s, low 90s on Friday, mid 90s on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
4: Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is
2: this week's Shop Friday Local Burgers and Fries?
4: Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%.
2: Local Burgers and Fries on the corner in Northampton on the main Dragon Keen plus Local Burgie.
5: Burgers and Barbecue in Williamsburg.
4: Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at WHMP.com.
0: This is the afternoon buzz with Buzz Eisenberg 1015 WHMP.
5: Grab your coat,
1: and get your hat Actually, I'm not so much Buzz Eisenberg today. I am oh you know what? Now this is time for my real show. So I am Nan Paraddy, introducing myself as Nan Paraddy. With the interesting thing. And today I got to have two interesting things. And this is my second interesting thing coming up. This is one of, so, okay, as I said, I am right now in Newport, Rhode Island, working the Newport Folk and Jazz Festivals. And we, the the festivals take place at Fort Adams, uh, which is a, a fort that was built, I think, after the War of 1812, I believe. That's true. And I know that because I've been listening to you. So all day long, they have tour guides coming through, bringing tours through the fort. And I stand outside and I make my signs and do everything I do. And I have a favorite tour guide that comes by every day. His name is Steve Marino, and he is so great. And he's very entertaining. He makes me laugh a lot. (laughs) And so I asked him to come here and talk about serious history. Stephen, are you up for serious history today? Yeah, thank you, Nan, and thank you for having me. This is this is fun. I am so glad you got here. This is so wonderful. So, so let's just talk. So, like I said, the festivals are held inside a fort. Um, tell me about that.
8: Well, it's a beautiful venue for all sorts of uh, uh, events. Um, we host weddings, we host clam bakes, we host the festivals. Because this fort was built, like many other coastal forts, right near the water, near sailing channels, and everyone who comes just loves it because it's a great place to fish, to walk, to sail, and it's just a lovely event.
1: Yeah, I I love being here every year. I love it so much. So tell us about the history of it. How did it, why is it here?
8: Well... After the War of 1812, poor James Madison, um, the British Marines landed in Washington, D.C., and they marched up to his house, and they took all of Dolly's, Madison's belongings and put them into a big pile and set them on fire. Wow, really? Yes, and so um, James Madison, after the war was over, He decided that the United States needed to beef up their defenses, Mm -hmm. and he got Congress to appropriate money to build fortresses.
6: Mm -hmm.
8: Whenever there was an important harbor or a city or a bay along the coast of the United States, they built a fortress to protect it. Uh Now, Fort Adams, believe it or not, is one of the biggest of them all, and a lot of people don't know this, but... Newport Harbor is the best harbor for sailing ships anywhere in North America. Oh, really? And there's really no debate about that. And what I like to do is to go ask a sailor at some bar, and and he'll tell me chapter and verse why Newport Harbor is the best harbor. Uh, and is that what made America. them? And that why they built the fort here because of the sailing? Even? That's why they built the finest fort to protect the finest port. Uh huh. And um, in 1820s, after the War of 1812, this was the finest seaport in the United States.
1: Huh. That's so interesting. Um, so 1812. So the war was already over. Mm-hmm. So what happened then? As far as like what were there? Did we? Has it? What, yeah. Tell me about.
8: Tell
1: well, me about subsequent
8: wars and stuff. It's like everything else. Uh, you have to get money to build it. Right. And we also didn't know how to do it. Um, these, the technology behind this fort is, was brand new, uh-huh. and James Madison didn't really have a lot of faith in our military engineers who were graduating from West Point at the time.
1: Uh-huh.
8: So he wrote a letter to his old pal, the Marquis de Lafayette, made famous in Hamilton. Right. And he wrote to Lafayette and said, you have the finest military engineers in the world. Do you think any of them would help us build our new series of forts? And Lafayette said, sure, there's lots of military engineers, and they don't have anything to do because Napoleon Bonaparte had been defeated. Uh At Waterloo, and he was in exile. And so uh, we got the United States, got Simone Bernard, Mm -hmm. who was Napoleon Bonaparte's chief architect. Uh-huh. And he got a commission in the United States Army from the president and he came over and helped us build the fort. So that's what that's what took a little while.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. What year was this fort completed then?
8: Well, the garrison arrived in eighteen forty one. Uh-huh. And so up from eighteen twenty four to eighteen forty one, it was just basically a construction site. Oh uh-huh, wow. And by the way, it was one of the three biggest construction sites in the entire United States. Oh wow. There was the Erie Canal Fort Adams, and another large fort at the mouth of the Chesapeake, Fort Monroe in Virginia. Wow. Yeah, it was huge. It took 20 years to build, hundreds and hundreds of laborers. Wow. Wow. And
1: did people live here? I
8: mean, how did that work? Very interesting. Almost all the laborers, Newport couldn't supply the three, 400 laborers needed to build the fort. And so... Most, if not all, of them, the laborers were Irish Catholic immigrants. Oh, really? And they did live out here.
1: Uh-huh.
8: Uh huh. Huge percentage lived out here in boarding houses. Uh, really? Yeah. And um, so they lived apart at the construction site, but they went to church in town.
1: Uh-huh.
8: And, uh huh. That was important. Yeah, it was very important. The very first Catholic church in the whole state of Rhode Island was in Newport.
1: Uh-huh. Because and, of that. And it was
8: built here because of the Irish laborers.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really, really interesting. Like, you know, all of, y- all of y'all need to come out here to this festival or just to come to do a tour of the fort because it's gorgeous. And it's so interesting and so many bricks. I'm always fascinated about how many bricks are in this building. There are so many bricks in this building. And I think about the people building them, about building this whole area. It's so, it's so precise.
8: Yeah, the brickwork is extraordinary. If you love exposed brick, which is to do fashion trend, know, on HGTV and stuff, <laughs> uh, there's so much exposed brick here. Right. And we're coming up with a theory that when the Irish immigrants came, they weren't skilled. Mm-hmm. They were just laborers. But after spending five or ten years out here, you learn. And um, in the 1850 census of Newport, there are, I think, mm, 18 or 19 Irish masons. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, we think they learned here.
1: Uh-huh.
8: And we know this place was a teaching fort because uh, the chief engineer who was in charge of building the fort, his name was Joseph Totten. He was a young West Point grad, and he worked with Simone Bernard, the Frenchman. So we had the architect who was French, but the engineer who actually built it was an American. He used this as a teaching fort. Uh-huh. And so if you were a good engineering student at West Point, you graduated, you came here, and you learned the secrets of these new, new uh, forts.
1: Oh, that's interesting. And yeah.
8: It's, it, it, so this was a university. Of, right. One of my bosses used to say it was like going to the moon. It was theoretically you were able to do it but no one had ever done it before.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And I know, too, from listening to your tours, that there's a lot of technology for that time, what was considered technology, of course, and it was technology then, that was developed here. For example, uh, where I work is in the casemate with the big, big cannon.
8: I'm very impressed you're using great words. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Very impressed. You were listening to I
1: Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. I listen to every tour. And so you should talk about the cannons because that's so interesting
8: yes if you if you think of any old fort you've ever been in, the cannons are always on top of the fort. If you go down to St. Augustine in Florida or you go to Fort McHenry or any old fort in the United States, the cannons are always on top of the fort mm-hmm. and that's because when you fire a cannon with gunpowder, it produces an enormous amount of smoke. So military architects and engineers always wanted to put cannons inside of forts, inside the walls, behind granite-thick walls, and with grass or sand on top of them, and they would be much more protected that way. Oh,
1: right. Yeah, that's
8: why. The problem I... with putting cannons inside rooms was that you fired the cannon once, the room would fill up with smoke, and you couldn't fire it again.
1: And how loud would that have been inside a room?
8: Brutally loud. And that's why they used big arches that were open.
1: Uh-huh.
8: And that's why one of the reasons Fort Adams is so beautiful, and people love to take pictures at Fort Adams because of these huge arches. Uh-huh. But it served a military purpose uh-huh. to take the concussion caused by a cannon blast and distribute it out in many different ways. Oh, right, right. Yeah.
1: So what did they do here to to deal with that whole smoke thing? You fire a cannon and then there's smoke. What did they
8: do? We're sitting in a room and I'm pointing. You can uh, see it on the radio. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they have vents everywhere. And but they're yeah they're vent they figured out how venting would work. Yes, and it it was more interesting than than we think because it wasn't like a smoke chimney in your house. It was more like a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And Newport, if you've ever been here, is very breezy. That's why sailors love it. It's one of the reasons it's the finest sailing seaport Mm -hmm. in America. And um, that breeze creates a nice low air pressure on top of the port, and the intense heat from firing a cannon creates incredibly high air pressure. I hope I'm explaining this. Yeah, I'm getting it. And it actually... (laughs) <laughs> the smoke sucked it out. gets stuck out like a vacuum cleaner Right Yeah, and the windier it is on top of the fort, the better it all works Right, but they have not figured that out before No
2: the, No, the, the, the and
8: here. it's uh, French and, Brit- and um, European engineers had built them in Europe uh-huh. No one had ever built them in the United States And so this fort had almost 300 case mates, uh-huh. Cannons inside the wall of a fort and I heard you the
1: other day talking about how many – so you can't just fire one cannon and hit a ship out there in the, in the bay, right?
8: Uh, the All-Star Game was last night, and unfortunately there wasn't a knuckleballer. But <laughs> firing a cannonball out of one of these old cannons, it was an irregular ball and an irregular barrel, and it didn't spin. So it was like throwing a knuckleball. You had no idea where the cannonball was going to go after it leaves the muzzle. Uh huh. And so consequently, uh, you had to fire a lot of cannons at once.
1: Yeah. Like, if
8: you fired a thirty-six cannons at a ship, you would hit it.
1: So you every time they fired one cannon, they had to fire like thirty. Yeah. It, otherwise,
8: it wasn't going to be effective. Wow. Yeah.
1: Just imagine the smoke and the sound and the was. Yeah. Everybody
8: deaf. Yes. Really and truly. Oh, yeah. It was a perennial problem. They used cotton and wax, Uh which maybe protected their eardrum, but didn't protect their brain from being injured when it rattled in their skull. Wow. Uh, We call it traumatic brain injury today or... PTSD, they had different names for it. In fact, then Battle Fatigue and uh-huh. other names. But.
1: but it was this wasn't even from being in combat. This was just from no, shooting just the cannons.
8: Practicing. Wow. Yeah, soldiering is hard.
1: Yes, yes, it is. And with that, at this moment, Dan, we're going to go to a break because I want to talk about powder monkeys no, when we get back. My no. favorite subject is powder monkeys, and we're going to talk about powder monkeys when we come back.
0: All right? This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. It
3: would be so nice to come home to.
0: There goes the light. Go ahead. You're on the air. When Radio Was relives the golden age of radio do you ever listen
4: to the radio oh i might tune in one of those comedy programs occasionally
0: can't you see anything at all under that blindfold well on a clear day i can see the blindfold you can i'm greg bell
4: and
5: join me with a switch of a dial when radio was brings you a whole world at your command
8: when radio was right here sunday nights from 8 to 10 on 101.5 whmp quiet numbskulls i'm broadcasting.
3: Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfoot Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Jessica O'Claire. Did you know you can start your pre-qualification or mortgage application online? Head on over to our new website at bestlocalbank.com and apply today. Or if you prefer, come see us in person at one of our Hampshire or Franklin County locations. Right now, we're also giving you the opportunity to save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. That's right, you get $750 plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you for a mortgage. It's the best local mortgage from the best local bank. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Missy Tatro. Or me, Jessica O'Claire, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th. Be a new, first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can
7: count on your friends at the co-op.
5: Martha Graham, Mum and Chance, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp all on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. Mum and Chance in their 50th year Cherish the Ladies, A Celtic Christmas. The Martha Graham Dance Company with the lost Graham masterwork Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets.
4: Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the City of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place, we're about engaging in place. This place. Find us online at NorthamptonNeighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160.
0: This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP.
1: And we are back, and I am Nan Ferretti with my most interesting guest today, who is Stephen Marino, who is a tour guide at Fort Adams State Park here in, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. And we've been talking about Fort Adams, and this because it's fascinating to me. I love history. But one of the things that also fascinates me, and now we're going to kind of move into ships a little bit, because mm-hmm. at first I said I thought this was about the fort, and he said, no, this is ships. Mm-hmm. So we're moving on to ships. But, you know, we have rules these days about how old you have to be to join the Army, to join the Navy, to be drafted, all of that stuff. We have very specific rules about this. But in those days, they didn't. Everybody was doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk about powder monkeys, well, <laughs> and I want to talk about more than I mean, powder monkeys are a part of this. But I want to talk about life in those days. What was life like when you when you worked on a ship? When you I mean when you were at war? Just everything.
8: Talk about all that, and who was involved? Well, it's kind of interesting because this fort depended on local militias actually to man the fort during a big battle. Um, militia companies from all the towns in New England would come to these forts and they would practice firing the cannons and then they would go home. So the garrison was maintenance people mostly. And um, not too many of them knew, even knew how to fire a cannon. They were, they were bakers and they were tailors and they were sign makers and they were musicians and they were buglers. And they, they maintained the port, kept it ready. And, um, uh, If a battle or a war ensued, uh, it was the militias that would come and actually fight the battle and and, um, fire the cannons. Uh, So what we try to do on tours is we try to make it entertaining for everybody. And so when we get a group of children on the tours, we teach them how to fire a cannon. And this is what Nan was talking about. And uh, we have a couple of cannons where we have all the tools that are necessary and we have these little cannon drills for, for the kids. And, and we, we do it with seven willing volunteers, sometimes, sometimes unwilling volunteers. <laughs> so uh, one of them is a powder monkey. Now, you can leave cannonballs right next to a cannon because cannonballs are basically inert, solid pieces of iron. But gunpowder you cannot leave in a casemate, especially near a cannon. So the gunpowder had to be stored outside the case bait, probably in a wagon, and somebody had to go get it every time you fired the cannon. And that person was called the powder monkey, because they're the only ones that really had to run back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. And back and forth. So one of our volunteers, usually a little one, we make the powder monkey. And uh, even
1: how their monkeys were frequently
8: young children. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That's just young boys. To me. Yeah, on ships, and we are we don't have any evidence of this because we don't know, but probably here too. Somebody who was quick and speedy.
1: Right, and plus, didn't you be kind of small anyway to be on a, on ship? a ship? yes, yeah, definitely. Right.
8: Yes, you had to move around on a sh- moving ship. Yeah, you had to be um, very lithe and very nimble.
1: Right. So it just amazes me. I just think about little kids, and we're talking about kids, like
8: 12 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I got to tell you, full disclosure, Nan loves to be the powder monkey. I
1: do. I do. She
8: interrupts the whole thing. (laughs) We're trying to get the kids to be entertained, and Nan goes, nope. I want to be the powder monkey. Right, I do. I love that part. And so you got you know something about Nan now that right. you didn't know before.
1: I am the powder monkey. Yes, the quintessential powder monkey. <laughs> yep.
8: During the festival weeks, Nan's the powder monkey. We can't get we have anybody else do it.
1: Right. So explain also, but I am fascinated. I do. I always think it's fascinating everything that goes into firing a cannon. Talk about that.
8: Well, in order to fire a cannon, as I said, you could have the the cannonballs right there. You have to leave the powder. Somewhere else. So somebody handles the powder, somebody handles the, the cannonball, and then there's tools. There's the worm, there's the wet sponge, there's the dry sponge, and the ramrod. And these tools have to be applied, and the officer has to give orders. And the most important thing, you're, you're working in a very small space, and everyone has to do an elaborate dance. And we try to tell the kids, the young ones that are doing this drill, how carefully choreographed it is. And what's fun about it, if you do it and you don't tell them too much and you don't give them too much direction, they end up hurting each other. I mean, they'll they'll whack each other. They'll bump into one another. And it's fun because after they do it three or four times, they get really, really good at it.
1: Yeah, and but see another important thing about this: the reason it's like that is because you only had so much time to fire cannons in a in a succession. It's
8: very it was very important, and there's a lot of different theories of artillery. But firing quickly is is considered a very important part of firing because aiming and elevation. Again, you had to fire a lot of them at once, so firing quickly. Um, there's one school of artillery that suggests firing quickly is the key, uh-huh. and so that's what they worked on: firing quickly, yeah, and keeping it cool.
1: Uh huh.
8: And so, if you ever see a cannon with gunpowder, and there's not a bucket of water next to it, it's fake.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's how you know. <laughs> that's how you know. I always wondered. You know, I see cannons everywhere, right? And I just wonder, how do I know if this is a real one? No bucket of, water. bucket of water. That's right. That's important.
8: Pull <laughs> cool it off the wet sponge.
1: <laughs> right,
8: and then the dry sponge.
1: <laughs> um, uh, let me ask you this: Were did people like? Did families live around here? Were women involved with anything with the fort?
8: Yes, there they were laundresses.
1: Uh huh.
8: And yeah, and uh, they lived right at the, on the fort premises. Uh huh. And there were quarters for the laundresses.
1: Uh huh. And
8: every fort had them. Uh huh. Yes, and they were very, very important. Um, and uh, basically because of the sanitation, and, and not enough is written or talked about. Uh huh. Um, the worst thing you could do in a fort like this or any military camp was foul the water with uh-huh. your own waste.
1: Oh, that's true. Yeah.
8: Yeah. And so the latrine. And keeping the water pure and keeping everybody's waste and slop pots in the latrine was hugely important. We never had a battle at Fort Adams, but we have a cemetery. Uh And that cemetery is a military cemetery for the soldiers who served here. Wow. And those first soldiers who died and were in that cemetery, they died of dysentery. Oh, wow. Which was drinking bad water. Uh Uh-huh. So we have a letter that we found in the National Archives, and it was from Colonel Totten, who was then in Washington, and he writes, the garrison is going to arrive and we have to finish the latrines. Mm. That was his first sentence. Right. The garrison is going to arrive and we have to finish the latrines. Anything else can wait. Right. But that's what's going to keep the soldiers healthy.
1: Um, And and speaking of the cemetery, I understand, in the latest tours, now this just came up recently in tours, I'm hearing a lot about ghosts. Y'all have a lot of ghosts here? Uh, The ghosts we have.
8: (laughs) That's what I've heard. Well, we we aren't Gettysburg. Uh Uh-huh. So we are not a battlefield, and there's not a lot of soldiers wandering around the battlefield as ghosts. Uh Uh-huh. But when the uh, ghost hunters come, and we just had a ghost hunt. Really? And I encourage people to come to our ghost hunts. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, From 9 to midnight, three or four times a summer. And when they come, they set up in the officers' quarters. Yeah. And only officers could bring their families.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
8: And so they set up in the officers' quarters because in the cemetery, there's 81 children buried out there. Wow. And the only place the children could have lived was in the officers' quarters. Uh So they set up their electromagnetic field detectors and their cameras and their auras and their thermometers. And when they come out, especially after one of these ghost hunts, they say it's all the spirits of children. Really? Yes. And that resonates with us because we know that there's 81 children buried out in the cemetery.
1: Huh. That's so interesting. So when the ghost hunters come, they find kids.
8: Yes, the spirits of kids. And it's always right in the officers' quarters or in the areas surrounding the officers' quarters. And that's the only place the kids could have lived.
1: Right. That's so interesting. Now, I heard one um, tour guide the other day talking about there's a woman who wanders around, a ghost woman,
8: Yes, there was a woman who came, and she was found frozen under snow. And there was a famous story so were about her, and uh, she was coming to visit her lover. She fell off, <laughs> I know, a parapet, and and then they didn't find her until the snow melted. Really? Yeah. And
1: now she wanders around and
8: yes, hunts now the children. Yes, and we we don't we don't know exactly where that took place where she fell off. We you know, we have different theories about that. That is very interesting. And unfortunately, we have to go. Well, <laughs> every tour needs a ghost story. And if, <laughs> if you want more stories about Fort Adams, please come and visit us. Yes. Anytime. We have tours every day until New Year's.
1: Oh Yeah. And it's so, and and try to get, no, I I shouldn't say this, but try to get Steven Marino as your tour guide, because he's so much fun.
8: All the tour guides are wonderful. (laughs) Thank you for having me, man. Thank
1: you for coming and doing this. I really appreciate it. So, we will say goodbye, and thank you so much.
8: Yep. Thanks again, man.
1: Thank
0: you. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, one oh one five. W-H-M-P.
5: With Joe Biden's approval ratings in the mid-30s, what are the odds that he will not run in 2024 and when does he need to decide? Join us for Political Gold with Josh Silver. Josh Silver is the executive chairman of the Northampton-based national organization to represent us and he will be our guest Thursday at nine o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5, WHMP, news, information, and the arts.
7: The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. The
0: only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 5 o'clock.